Hey friends, welcome to Girls Night. I'm Stephanie Mae Wilson and I am so happy that you're here. Each week I have a girlfriend over and we talk through one of the biggest questions we have about our lives as women. We're talking about friendships and faith and relationships and self-confidence, about our calling in life and how to live every bit of our lives to the full. Life is so much better and easier and absolutely more fun when we navigate it together as girlfriends and I cannot wait to get started. So recently, I heard a statistic that says that 90% of men and women in Western cultures hate their bodies. Isn't that crazy? 90%. But the thing is, it's not that crazy because for most of my life, I've totally been part of that 90%. Now, I don't always hate my body. Sometimes I just dislike my body. And thankfully, more and more in the last 10 years or so, I've started to actually sometimes like my body, occasionally even love it. But overall, I have truly lost count of the numbers of hours and days and months and years I've spent wishing my body was different. And I know I'm not alone in this. You know, there have been some really great body positivity conversations happening lately, and I am so grateful for them. But I also know that sometimes when people talk about learning to love our bodies, the solutions they suggest just don't sit well with me. Things like, just think about your body differently, are so much easier said than done. It feels like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Now, I am glad that people are suggesting something because we can't keep going like this. This is the one body we have. We only get one. And we also only get one life. And I just don't wanna spend my one and only life hating my one and only body. There are so many other lovely and important things I'd rather be thinking about. But again, getting to that place is a lot easier said than done. And so that's why I'm just thrilled about today's podcast episode. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Hilary McBride, Hillary is a therapist, an author, a researcher, and a speaker, and she recently came out with a book called The Wisdom of Your Body that is truly exceptional. I'm reading it alongside several of my girlfriends, and it is reshaping our minds and our hearts towards our bodies in just incredible ways. Today, I'm asking Hillary my hardest questions about body image. I'm asking her things like, how did we get to this place where 90% of men and women hate their bodies? Also, how did this become a thing that's both accepted and expected? I asked her, how does this hatred of our bodies impact other areas of our lives, specifically our relationships? I asked her, if we accept our bodies as they are right now, does that mean that we're giving up any hope of ever being healthier or stronger? And then most importantly, how do we get to a place where we truly love our bodies as they are today? Friends, if you've ever struggled with body image in any way, I am so happy to get to share this episode with you. I truly believe that there's freedom for all of us in this area of our lives, and I am so grateful to Hillary for showing us the way. But before we dive in, if you guys haven't heard the big news already, I am so excited to share that my brand new shop is here. It includes a collection of gifts and resources and gear specifically designed for our Girls' Night community. Friends, I've been working so hard on these things for months behind the scenes, and I'm just over the moon about getting to share them with you, especially now that the holidays are around the corner. I've put together a whole collection of gifts like sweatshirts and mugs and keychains that are perfect to get for your girlfriends or for yourself. And they're all designed to remind you of who you are, who God is, and that we're all in this together. One thing I wanted to tell you about specifically is our collection of brand new Girls' Night sweatshirts. They're a way to represent the Girls' Night community as well as a celebration of the total magic that happens when we gather together as girlfriends. They are also so soft. I'm literally wearing mine right now. I've been wearing nothing else for months. There are so many amazing new items in the shop so make sure to go check them out. The website is stephaniemaywilson.com. Again, that's stephaniemaywilson.com. Okay, now without any further ado, here's my conversation with Hillary. 
right, friends, I am just honored and thrilled for who I get to introduce you to today. I'm sitting across from my new friend, Hillary McBride. Hillary, thank you so much for coming on Girls' Night. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so I'm so pleased to be here, especially in COVID. There haven't been the same kind of girls' nights that we would normally do. So this is, yeah, this feels much needed. It is. So it's so needed. Okay. Well, so for women who don't know who you are yet, like I'm going to just say you're welcome in advance because they're just going to love you. <laughs> um, tell us who you are, what you do, and a fun fact about yourself. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm a registered psychologist. That's kind of my professional identity. I work, I teach at university, I see patients, I research. Those are kind of some of my professional things. But right now, my primary identity, who I am is a mom. So I have a, as as much as I've just kind of released a little book baby into the world, probably more primarily I'm a mom to a little human, a little daughter who's three months old. So that is my that's who I am right now. I'm fully in mom mode. And you caught me on a day I had a shower, which is a real just it, bonus. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh-huh. And I was thinking through your question about the fun fact and whether this will kind of tarnish my reputation or maybe enhance it. I'm not sure. I I collected chewed gum for a while when I was in high school. So I would chew gum and I would put it on a pile of chewed gum and it eventually became what we called in my family, the gum ball. And it started to get so, so big that then it was a thing and I couldn't throw it out. And then eventually I got married to a man with uh, sensibilities and he said, you cannot bring that into our marital home. So I got rid of the gum ball. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) I'm Uh, sure you do. (laughs) So, um... (laughs) Are like, are you a big gum chewer? Like, how? No. Why did you start doing this? I don't know. I think I, you know, sometimes people will like take a piece of gum that they chew and will put it somewhere and like chew it later. Like, if you're eating, like at a dinner or something, you're like, oh, I'm gonna want to save that for later. Like, I had some friends who did that, and I remember like putting putting something somewhere and then having another piece of gum, and I was like, oh, I'll just put it on the same pile and we'll just kind of see what happens. And then I just kept doing it and then it became a thing and my friends would come over and they would add, like we wouldn't take it off and chew it. So once it had been chewed and put on the ball, the it, gum ball like it was on it, it yeah. stayed there. Yeah. So it was not like we were recycling the gum, but it it's, it's gross. It's really gross. How big did it get? Uh, I would say larger than a softball, not a baseball, a softball. So like if you to take your fingers and outstretch them. Yes, yes. And touch the fingertips about that size. That is really... It's I'm concerning. so... <laughs> no, it's a concern. It's awesome because everyone has <laughs> something you. like that where they're like, this is weird. Like, this is weird that I did this or that I do this. But like, we all have it. I love that. Hillary, I am so, oh, so yeah. glad. That is a great fun fact. I got a, I got a real quirky side and most people don't see that. Or maybe I should say, I don't get to let it out very often, probably because of the content I talk about and the work that I do. So, um, I appreciate the question. Well, I love, I love quirky pieces of, of, of people's personalities because when I'm around someone who is quirky and who like shows that quirkiness, my instant reaction right now is I want to be quirkier. Like, where is my quirky side? I'm just like trying, like digging through, trying to pull it out. So that's awesome. That's oh, so you'll freeing. find her. She's in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, okay. Well, so you mentioned your your book baby, along with your beautiful baby baby. But um, tell us, it's been out 
not very long. Tell us about, yeah, like, tell us what it's called. Tell us about the book. Um, I have several wow. friends who are digging into it right now alongside me and we wow. are, we're getting into it. Ooh, right on. Cool. Well, this is perfect. Perfectly timed then. So the book is called The Wisdom of Your Body. And the idea of the book is a, a kind of an introduction into embodiment and then kind of how we become disembodied, what to do about that. And those words might be new to some people. So would this be a good chance to, or a good time to kind of talk about what embodiment is? Yeah. yeah. So embodiment, the way that I understand it or came to it is that most of us in our culture think about bodies from the outside only. We think about bodies as being the exact same thing as how our bodies appear. And we forget that there's so much more to what it means to be human than just how we look. So we think about our bodies primarily through other people's gaze or kind of a, a cognitive or like a up in our mind perspective. And we forget about how tuning into our bodies is really important for our ability to be whole, well, connected to other people, create just societies, and really even just to experience a more joyful, pleasurable life. So embodiment is about experiencing ourselves as bodies, not just thinking about ourselves as a mind that has a body that kind of carries it around like a taxi. And then understanding, and this is kind of where it gets a little political, is understanding how society, how the stories in the fabric of our culture impact the experience of being a body. So being a body is not just an individual endeavor. It is a cultural endeavor. And most of us, even the way that we think about bodies just being about appearance, don't realize that that's not something that exists everywhere. But that's a cultural thing that we've been taught, that we don't even know we've been taught. Okay. That is awesome. I... I am so, so excited to have this conversation with you today. I have so many questions for you and I love this work that you're doing because I think that so many of us are stuck in our heads when it comes to our bodies. Like our, our, our minds about our bodies are a pretty ugly place to be. And I know that that's, I mean, that's been the case for me for, for really most of my life. And, and it's not always the case currently, but then sometimes it is. And it's just this kind of pool I find myself slipping into sometimes all the time and sometimes a little bit. And I think that it's, there's just a lot of us in here and it's a really, really hard place to climb out of. And so the work that you're doing is so important. And, um, I just want to dive in cause I, I, I don't want to miss a single yeah. question. Um, okay. So first of all, when we're talking about our bodies, you've done a ton of research about body image. And um, uh. I think it's it's pretty normal for us to complain about our bodies to each other. But I don't know that, I, I don't know, even with the how honest my friends and I are with each other, I don't know how honest, like truly honest we are about the things that we believe about our bodies. And, and I don't, and, and we're really pretty honest with each other. And so for women... I think that there's a chance that we're thinking all these things about our bodies and we think we're the only ones, yeah. which makes it worse. And so I right. wanted to ask you, what are some of the common things that you hear women saying about their bodies? Like, what do we, what's normal? Right. Yes, exactly. So what I'll say is, is what, what's normal and what's commonly occurring are two different things. Because I would say normal is like within the range of like what's really maybe healthy. And yet there are so many of us that have very unhealthy 
beliefs about our bodies, practices related to our bodies. So maybe I'll just kind of slice that there and say lots of us. So very frequently do women struggle with their body, but I think that there is so much more that gets to be normal for us Mm. if we start having more conversations like this. So some of the things that I hear show up for people are, are their body compared to other people or compared to the ideal or compared to what it used to be their body is too much of something or not enough of something. So when we start talking about bodies, comparison is really deeply woven into our metric of how we know that our body is good or not, good or not. And then that evaluation of our body is deeply connected to if we believe that we are good or not. So if my body is, looks a certain way, it's too much this, or it's too, it's not enough of that then somehow that gets connected to our worth as a person. And that is something that shows up. I mean, the truth is like really young for girls. Now, it's not something that just shows up in the teen years anymore. We're seeing it show up younger and younger and younger for girls. In fact, around five, six or seven, we often see what's called a thin preference in girls. And that's not something you're born with. And that's not something that shows up in every culture. That's a specifically North American phenomena that exists as a product of our culture that is oriented towards, I mean, yeah, the very specific definition of what an ideal body looks like. And so you see it in, in girls as young as five that they tell me, like explain thin preference, just. Right. Yeah. The, the, I would say the awareness of body size and the preference for a body that is smaller and an awareness culturally that that is somehow I'm using big air quotes here, better, that makes you better, that that is, that you are a better person, right? And of course, I just want to say off the bat that these are things that are not true. These are things that are not healthy. These are things that are actually very problematic. And yet they're so common they're, they're, that kids without us even teaching them are picking up on it. You've tell me, I might be getting this stat wrong, but I've, I've seen you say that uh, 90% of men and women in Western cultures, loathe their bodies. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. You got that right. So there's, there's different statistics. There are some statistics that depending on the age demographic or the way that a person kind of thinks politically or who they're surrounded with or some of their other experiences that there are different statistics, but that's as high as it can go really that we see that in certain populations up to 90%. And that is not just girls and women, that is including boys and men, unfortunately, as we're seeing social media become more um, more utilized in men, as we're seeing the way that our, our culture is shifting to what we call like kind of an objectified body consciousness, where we are seeing images of bodies and ideal bodies constantly. We're just inundated with them all the time. Um, that it's not just women who are struggling with their bodies in this way anymore. It's increasingly boys and men. So depending on the sample of people that you're talking to, it can be that high. And in some cases, it can be lower. If you were to go find a community of people who were uh, body positive, fat positive, um, kind of in disability activism, maybe in the queer community, in the black community, right? There would be a group of people who would say, you know, maybe 90% of us love our bodies. Mm -hmm. But when you take the whole, whole North America probably like teen years to late middle age, that's what you're going to find. And like, what, 
when we talk about this, like, is it, you know, I just casually feel dissatisfied with my body Mm. or, or, you know, what are some of the things that you hear people saying? What are some of the common like tracks that are playing in other women's heads? We know what ours sound like, but we don't know what anyone else's sound like. Yeah. So my body should look different than it is. I can't believe it looks this way. I should make this change. This is this is a barrier for me being loved. This is the thing that's going to get in the way of me achieving my dreams. I need to manage my eating. I need to manage my exercise. I need to get this procedure. I need to spend this money. I need to buy this product. Um, I need to buy different clothes. I need to keep these clothes and do something different to my body to fit into the clothes instead of buying new clothes. There's lots that has to do with our behaviors around appearance. So what we eat, how we move, what we think other people are thinking about us and what we look like, how we dress ourselves. That's, I would say that that takes up a lot of room. Yeah. How did we, you know, you've mentioned that this is a cultural thing and that in different parts of the world, different bodies are celebrated or bodies are celebrated differently. How did we get to a place where this many people hate the way that they look and spend a lot of time thinking about how much they hate the way that they look? Well, there's a few different ways we can answer that question. One of them is to look at all of the different systems that are involved in this. So systems that profit from people feeling badly about themselves so that they want to purchase things to make themselves feel better, right? There is a definite monetary gain to women hating their bodies because they throw tons of money at the problem. I would say that there is a a spiritual element to it too, which is that in many different faith contexts, primarily the, um, the Christian faith, which is, you know, my home faith tradition, there have been lots of messages about the body being bad. So the the story that we've heard culturally is the body is bad, the spirit is good, and we have this kind of split between these two parts of ourselves, and we think that one is a problem. I would say that there is... Um, like patriarchal influences about the ways that women, particularly in our in our society, have been devalued over time. And not only have women been devalued, but they've been made to think that their bodies are the only and best and most important part of them. So if women have less social power than men, one of the ways that you can get social power is to be desirable, to be beautiful, to work on your appearance, to yeah, to all of a sudden be prized, to be wanted. And so we have become convinced. I mean, there's so many other systems that are at play here, including media and advertising. And um, I would say kind of mind-body dualism. And if we wanted to talk about it even more explicitly and go further back, things like colonization and the way that the relationship between people and land changed hundreds of years ago in North America. And all of that being connected to things like fat phobia, there's just, there's so many different things and they're all pointing to the story that women are less valuable, but the way that they can be valuable in our North American society is if their bodies are somehow small, disappear, thin, right? Like are not threatening, don't take up any space at all. And this ironically is fed to us without us even knowing it. And so many of us have these stories and we, like you said, we think that we are the only ones. And so we think, wow, this is really a problem of me and my body. And I need to change my body to manage this problem without realizing our bodies have never been bad. Just the stories about our bodies that we believed were bad and that they're harming us. But we, in our size, whatever size 
pants we're in, whatever we look like, however much skin we have, whatever color of our skin, however our body functions, our bodies are good. The stories that we learned about them are not. I feel like that's the kind of thing that we just need to sit with for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a oh, rewind, uh-huh. play again moment. Hmm. What's at stake here? Mm. If we, if we, what, what are we losing by, mm-hmm. by believing these stories or what, yeah. I guess in some ways, what if we, what if we lost? Like what, what, why does this matter? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I'm aware of the times in my life that I've struggled significantly with my relationship with my body. And I can promise you that I was not doing things with my energy and my time that I was most proud of. And when I think about how much energy went into managing what I was eating, managing how I looked, managing um, how I was appearing to other people, it was eclipsing, I would say, my wholeness, my ability to really lean into my giftings, really leading to my relationships. I mean, the number of times that I didn't enjoy a meal because I was so preoccupied with what was in the food and I lost the ability to connect in the moment with who was right in front of me. I mean, that was years of my life, not to mention, I mean, for myself, I had a history of an eating disorder. There was just time when I was, I was so mentally unwell. I wasn't able to function. I wasn't able to pursue the things that really light me up in life. So I would say that preoccupation or just this fixation with our body, the, the hating of our bodies takes energy from away from the things that actually make us feel whole. And I think that one of the things that makes us feel whole is our, our awareness of our interdependence to each other, our ability to create a world where there are communities of belonging for everybody. I think that that's, this is my bias showing here, but I really believe that we are wired to care for other people who are in suffering. I think we are wired to want to intervene when we see people hurting. And I just don't think that we can do that. I don't think we can make a beautiful, just world and care for the earth and, um, create and laugh and play and enjoy our sexuality and enjoy our communities and enjoy our foods. If we're so busy thinking that we have to disappear, that our bodies need to go away. Mm. That's, um, I can relate to that so much. I, I think about this all the time being a woman, uh, and, and, Oh gosh, there's so many things that are going through my head right mm. now. But like, it takes so much time. It takes so much time. If you think about how much time we spend putting on makeup in the morning and then, you know, getting dressed for the day. And those are just like pretty basic things without getting our hair highlighted. Like that takes hours, right. however yeah. many times, you know, a year that you do it. Um, getting things waxed, getting things, you know, right. extended, <laughs> getting things taken in. I mean, they're just... It really is so time consuming and that's without any of the mental stuff that goes on as well. And Mm -hmm. you know, you said enjoying our sexuality and that's just a really easy like translation for me because when you're feeling insecure in your body, when you're consumed with hating your body, like taking your clothes off and connecting with someone that you love Uh is really hard. Like you want to have as many clothes on as possible if you're feeling Uh, if if you don't feel good in your skin, it's really hard to share your skin with someone else. Yes. And that's so beautifully said. Like we, sexuality happens in our bodies. Yes. Like there's a mental component to it as well, 
And for some people, that's a really significant part of how they experience arousal or like feeling turned on, like fantasy or thinking about things or like anticipation of, of a sexual encounter. But I think it's really hard to experience our sexuality if we cannot experience being in a body because that's where sexuality happens. That's where pleasure happens. And I don't just mean sexual pleasure. I really mean like even just enjoying a beautiful walk on a sunny day, like enjoying the pleasures of being alive. Those are things that are not just ideas. They are experiences. They are sensations. They are, um, you know, that warmth that spreads in your chest or the tingles you get all over or like the, the, the intensity of the contraction in your core when you're laughing really hard. Like pleasure happens in our bodies and and it's really hard to go there if our bodies are not a place we believe are good or not a place we want to hang out or we've been made to believe are bad or are unsafe in yeah. some way. The the missing of meals makes me so sad too. I, I think about that as well for me where it's just uh, food is such a beautiful thing. It's such a, a delight yes. in, in my life. It's something that I just like, right. I, I love food. I love the culture of it. I love the art of it. I love the junk delivery pizza of it. Right. Um, yeah. but it's, it's all of that is taken away when food becomes an enemy of our love and belonging, which is kind of a trickle down effect of this. Yes. Well, this is like, I think something I'm learning in a really new way is I think about having a daughter and I'm, I know not everybody has an interest in breastfeeding or is able to breastfeed. So I'll speak specifically from my experience here, but in breastfeeding my daughter, there was a while at the beginning where it felt like such an interruption. Like, oh my gosh, you want to you want to eat again, <laughs> again? <laughs> really? You, what? Wow! Like, okay, I guess we're gonna do this. We're gonna, you know, we're just gonna pick up and our stuff, and we're gonna stop at the park in the middle of nowhere because we're not gonna make it home. Or like, oh, we're gonna pull over to the side of the road, and I'm gonna feed you. And I saw feeding her as such an interruption until I realized, like, I think I needed to be interrupted. Like, there's something about slowing down to feed ourselves, slowing down to feed someone else that is meant to make us stop, make us interrupt everything, our plans, our ideas, our schedules, the busyness, the chaos of our lives and feed ourselves, nourish ourselves. And I think I'm really seeing the beauty of nourishing myself in a new way after seeing that reframe for my relationship with my, like my my experience of breastfeeding my daughter going, oh, I was so caught up in my schedule and everything running the way that I wanted it to, that I didn't see that this is such a privilege to feed you. And if it's such a privilege to feed you, maybe it's also a privilege to feed me. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool. How, you know, in your work as a, a researcher and as a therapist as well, where do you see this coming out? Like, Tease this out for us a little bit. Sure. We spend, you know, so much time focusing on our bodies or, you know, fixing them, changing them, feeling insecure about them. Like, you know, we miss the present moment, but what does this look like long-term? Like, how have you seen mm -hmm. the struggle with our bodies impact different relationships or careers? Yes. Do you have any, like, info on that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would just say really simply, like, our bodies break down when we don't care for them. And why would we care for something that we believe is bad or shouldn't exist? Like there's kind of this working model that we have in North America that, that our bodies are this thing. They're kind of like an object and they're the object that gets our mind around. 
And the object, if we're not valuing it, we're not going to maintain it. We're not going to support it. We're not going to nourish. We're not going to tune into our bodies. And then of course, anything that is alive that isn't being nourished or cared for is going to start showing signs of that. Like I think about even just for most of us, what's a practical example, like noticing that if we have a plant in our home and we don't water the plant, that it doesn't grow very well and it needs light. And if it doesn't get the light, it's not going to grow very well. So the way that we as human beings have deprived ourselves of the things that we need, like it's, it's survivable for a little while. And then at some point, the st- chronic stressors, the, the pace that we've been going at, that's a breakneck speed, the diets we've been on, the, the conflicts that we've been having with our you know, partner. And instead of feeling the feelings, we kind of shove them down and tune out and go on our phones for hours. Like all of those things add up and our body starts to say, this isn't working anymore. But then the problem is that instead of seeing that as an opportunity to connect more deeply to ourselves and say, okay, I need to rewrite the script of how I live my life. We just use that as evidence to prove our prove to ourselves that our bodies really are bad and have been bad all along. Like, see, look, my body's breaking down. See, look, my body isn't changing the way I want it to. It's a problem. It's a thing that I, you know, that I just need to, I need to get rid of essentially, or I need to update. Maybe for some people are like, if I get that surgery or I do the thing, like then everything will be better. And I don't have to think about my body anymore. But my sense is that our body is not just a thing, but is actually the place where we exist, where goodness lives, where our spirit is, where our body is alive, is living, and is constantly inviting us to come home to ourselves. And so there is, there are costs to disconnection with ourself. And we see them lots in kind of in, in pain or medicine or aging. But I would say that it's never too late ever, 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 ever to build a new relationship with our bodies. It is never too late to say, I'm sorry and repair the damage that we've done. It is never too late to learn to think about our bodies a new way to start to nourish ourselves. And so I think I just want to say as much as we see the effects of this everywhere, including, I would say, just a huge amount of disorders, physiological and psychological that are a result of ongoing stress that hasn't been treated, it is never too late to build a bridge back to yourself. Never. And so maybe this is the invitation, like this conversation, maybe this is the way, no matter how much illness you've had, no matter how much you've hated what you look like, no matter how much your body has carried trauma because you felt unsafe, it is never too late to heal that. I love hearing that. That's so good. Hey friends, I want to take a quick pause from my conversation with Hillary to thank our sponsor for today. Our sponsor for today's episode is an awesome company called Pros. Now, most of you have probably heard me sing the praises of Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. But for those who haven't, I wanted to tell you about the incredible results I'm seeing in my hair since using my customized Pros products. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their hair quiz, and that's how the process started for me. The quiz was so much fun. It felt like one of those magazine quizzes I used to love. It was easy, but also in depth. They asked me so many questions that I wouldn't have thought to answer. Questions like, how much does your hair shed? Answer is a lot. Anyone else? Or is your hair oily at the ends or just near your scalp? And so you answer a bunch of questions, all these specific questions, and then they take your answers. And then their algorithm puts together the perfect products for your specific hair. And get this, they have over 50 billion formula combinations. So you know you're getting a formula that is perfectly tailored to you. 
So anyway, I did the hair quiz and I placed my order. And just a few days later, the package showed up on my doorstep. And I was immediately impressed. Everything from the box, the packaging is beautiful. I order a pre-shampoo mask, shampoo and conditioner, and they come in these beautifully designed bottles and all the bottles have my name on them. Isn't that such a great personal touch? And every time I use the products, I'm blown away by the fact that they smell so good. It's like having a spa day right in my shower. The other thing I think is really cool is that they give you detailed instructions for how to use the products, which I don't know about you, but I cannot remember the last time someone told me how to shampoo and condition my hair. But I'm so glad because I've learned so much. Anyway, I've been using these products for a while now and it has made such a difference. My hair feels silky and soft and looks even shinier. And the other thing I really like is that you can continuously customize your formula. They'll help you tweak things depending on your lifestyle changes or even changes in the weather. Pros is also focused on providing clean and responsible products. Every product is free of parabens, sulfates, phthalates, mineral oils, GMOs, and is always cruelty-free. Plus, they list out every single ingredient they use on their website, so there are no secrets. Also, if you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they will take back the products, no questions asked. But I have a feeling that won't be an issue for you. Guys, Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. You can take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. All you have to do is go to pros.com slash girlsnight. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash girlsnight for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. Pros, thank you so much for sponsoring our Girls' Night. We just love having you. Okay, now without any further ado, let's jump back into my conversation with Hillary. I've heard different people talk about, you know, making peace with your body Mm -hmm. as it is today. And a lot of the, the, you know, advice that I've heard is, is good, but it a little bit feels like putting like a bandaid on a, on a bullet wound because this is big stuff that, I mean, you know, I think maybe for some of us, we, we have just a minor dislike for our bodies, but for some of us, it is consuming. It is like true, like truly, truly consumes us. And so how do we fix this? How do Mm. we make peace with our body? How do we stop seeing it as this, you know, you said taxi and I was like, I feel like it's like a broken down minivan, you know, we're like, oh gosh, (laughs) junk this thing. Like, how did I get stuck with this one? You know, Uh it's just the, uh, the ideas we have about our bodies, they are ingrained. So how do we, how do we start to make this better? Yes. I think that like, I just love the analogy that you used of putting a bullet, like a bandaid on a bullet wound. Like we actually need to go in and find that bullet sometimes. Like we need some surgery. Like sometimes it's not enough. I would say in lots of, lots of ways, it is not enough to pretend that there isn't a bullet in there. In fact, that's part of why we get stuck. We're just kind of disconnecting instead of going towards the source of the pain. So as much as it seems kind of paradoxical because we're, you know, obsessing about our bodies or we're fixated on what we look like, going towards not just reinforcing that, but going towards the root of where that comes from is part of how we heal. How did we learn? Like asking ourselves questions, and maybe this is something we do in our, you know, in a group of friends or in a book circle or in a community group or with a therapist. We ask ourselves, how did it become so normal? For me to feel this obsessed with myself and how I look and, and obsessed with trying to change my body. Where did this come from? What has it gotten me? And that's a really important question to ask ourselves because we, ru- we rush right to here's the problem with this or here's the solution for this. But we rarely ask, 
how has it actually helped me to hate my body? How has it made me belong? How has it gotten me friendship with other people? How has it uh, kept me safe? Because actually feeling the turmoil in my home growing up or the tension in my marriage or the trauma in my body, it's been too much. How, how is it working for me? And until we understand how it's working, we will never, we will never be able to replace it or heal because it's doing something. The things that stick around this long and are that deeply ingrained in us are there for a reason. They are doing something. So play that out for, okay. Give a couple examples of like what the answers I just sat here, like I, and I know no one can see me, but I'm just sitting here with my eyes closed. Like, oh my gosh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also rewind, replay. Think about that for like, I don't know, a year. Oh. We're going to have to really unpack this. This <laughs> is so good. So yeah, tease that out a little bit. Give us like a couple examples of how it could be working for us and right. what could replace it. Yeah. Okay. So here, I'm not going to try to get too much into the nitty gritty, but there's so much more about this for anyone who's interested psychologically speaking, when things are too painful, our brain is extraordinarily creative at creating diversions to take us away from the things that are painful to help us feel like we have control, agency, power, uh, safety, a way to cope. So we call these defenses and our defenses really just do that. They defend against what is otherwise too much to bear. So for example, I'll just speak in kind of like abstract terms. Let's say you have a trauma in your life. Something feels overwhelming, unbearable. It's, it was too much to handle. And you didn't get the support that you needed or you got blamed for the trauma uh, or you had to survive and there was no room to process it. What do we do with the fact that we have this huge psychological thing that is confronting us constantly? Well, our brain gets really good at saying, hey, how about you look over here? How about you look over at this thing? How about... Uh, you get fixated on this, on your diet. Because if you can control what you're eating and how much you weigh, then all of a sudden your body doesn't feel like such a scary place to be anymore. I'm going to, you know, really simple equation. If I feel unsafe in my body, how can I get some control over that? And so when we look at that strategy of fixating on like diet and exercise and weight, it could be that that is a way that we are trying to solve another problem. Like maybe what we're trying to do is get control so that we feel like the trauma isn't taking over our thoughts anymore. We're not feeling unsafe in our bodies. Until we recognize that it's doing that for us. And instead of just trying to rip the Band-Aid off, seeing like, oh, there's a bullet wound under there. Like, oh, it was trying to stop the bleeding, right? It was trying to help me from bleeding out. And it did a pretty good job, like keeping some of that wound together. So, wow, thank you, Band-Aid. And I need to do a little bit of different work because that's not enough to help me manage everything else that's going on underneath this for me. What about, that's an awesome example. You know, we talked earlier about like thin preference and the fact that mm-hmm. there's so, our, our our culture is shaped around you belong and you're celebrated and you're good if you look like this. And so yeah. what if that's the thing that this has gotten us or, or like, how do we, is learning to love our bodies as they are like letting go of belonging if we don't get to choose the rules of 
mm. what, who belonging belongs to. Does that make sense? <laughs> right. Like if, if looking a certain way is how we belong, does it cost us belonging if we don't care about how we look? Yes. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Okay. I would say um, maybe in some circles. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a real, like a reality that we have to pay attention to that if there have been spaces of conditional belonging and we don't meet those conditions, we're probably not going to belong. But I will follow that up by saying, did we ever really belong if it was conditional? If we were only ever really loved because of how we looked, then we weren't ever really loved. Then we were just kind of like towing the party line, right? Like that's not actual belonging. It's a kind of like pseudo or like belonging adjacent, but it's not being known for who we really are. So what I will say is that there are communities all over the place where you get unconditional belonging or certainly around like what your body looks like and shows up like. And maybe this is a case of realizing, oh, I see the values that I didn't see before in that community. And I want I want to find some new friends. I want to find some new people to hang out with, to learn from, to grow with, to think critically about all this stuff with. So having people that we feel safe with in our bodies around us in our life is so important. And I think it's okay if sometimes we go through seasons of like building up a new, you know, community because we realize that we see kind of like ugliness to the one that we've just left. That is so good. That is so good. I think, you know, I've thought about safety in relationships and in communities a lot because I've had times in my life when I felt really unsafe with friends. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. but I think the parts of me that have felt unsafe, I thought were, was was like my mind and my heart and, and maybe Mm -hmm. like my personality. Actually though, I, it never occurred to me the idea of feeling physically unsafe in your friend group other than like harm coming to you, you know, like right, th- there's exactly. a, there's a, yeah, that like feeling I, like we're going to be judged for how we look or yeah. right. Like there are lots of people based on what their body looks like who constantly are feeling this. Like, it's just, it's their day to day and feeling like they have to apologize for, you know, for, for how they look or they're preoccupied with like, what are other people going to think of me? Cause I'm eating this cause I'm this size or what are people going to think about the way that I move because this cultural or ethnic identity, it's, yeah, there are loads of people. And it, it, I mean, this is really important to name the fact that this was something I learned about because of research and not something that I had to live to learn about gives me so much insight into how, how much privilege I hold in my body. Like I have friends who uh, use mobility aids so they're constantly thinking like, well, is the restaurant we're going to um, going to be able to be wheelchair accessible? And the fact that I don't even have to think about if my body is welcome there because I can just walk into any restaurant I want reminds me, whoa, like I have so much to learn about other people's experiences of what it's like for them to be in their body. But this is like, it's true. It's belonging is central to our ability to thrive as people. And it's it's really, I mean, I wish there was a better way to say it. It just sucks. It's just, it's just awful that some people, because of how they are, feel like they can't belong. And I would say that their bodies don't need to change, but our stories around belonging need to change. Yeah. And, and friend groups 
mm-hmm. potentially need a change exactly. as well. It's, I, yeah. I think it really, you know, friendships are something that I've been thinking about a lot in, I mean, life in general. I feel like some of the, the, our girls night women know this, but my friendships are the best part of my life and mm-hmm. also been some of the toughest parts of my life. But I think I just never, I mean, I really, really relate to feeling judged or not feeling good enough or feeling afraid that someone was going to, I don't know, just worrying about what other people are thinking of me physically. But I think that I always named that as emotionally unsafe. I never like gave room for, I don't know. I just never thought about finding a a community where my body was safe. Like Uh that was a, a, it's a separate thing that is also incredibly important. I just never like gave a category to it. That's, yeah, that's right. It's amazing. It's like adds so much complexity to the conversation or maybe like helps make sense of things for you or for me or for people who are listening to think about it in that way. Yeah. What, um, are there any other, you know, I mean, I know you have a ton of things and we're going to link to your book and to all of your work, but are there a couple other directions you can point us in? You know, we talked about like looking for the, the, bullet and like what is this covering up in your life what is what role is or what like purpose is this serving what are a couple other things that we can do to start healing this relationship one of my favorite things and this shows up in research all over the place is to start thinking critically about media because so many of the images that we get about what is a you know quote unquote ideal body come through the images that we see on social media and advertisements and TV programs and movies and whatnot. And so starting to pay attention to what bodies look like and what messages about bodies are passed through media is a way to start to kind of peel back the curtain. And I think that um, like it's it's so ancient now, but there was a documentary by Jean Kilborn called Killing Me Softly. And it was so important for understanding how media changes images to make us think that there's a one kind of way to have a good body. And she really was one of the first people, I think in a kind of public way that said, start to pay attention to what you see, because what you see shapes what you think and what you think shapes how you feel or reflect about, you know, what you look like. And so when we can be thoughtful about the images that we're seeing, then we can also speak up to companies and say, Hey, how come you don't have bigger sizes or Hey, how come you don't have people who look like me or, or move like me or whatever it is in your ad campaigns or on your platforms or in your profiles. And then I think we can also be really thoughtful about the accounts that we follow. So if we, if we are looking at things and we realize we feel bad about ourselves because of the stuff that we're seeing, instead of trying to change our body, how about we just don't follow those accounts? How about we just don't shop at those stores? How about we just <laughs> don't watch those shows. Like, I think it's okay for us to decide that something is harming us. And so we're not going to participate in engaging in it anymore. But it, that's kind of countercultural too, because that might be the very thing. Like, as you're saying that maybe some of your friends are like, no, 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 I want to watch that show. Or like, oh, no, no, no. Like that, that, that's the way that we connect in the way that we bond. In fact, one of the things that I found in my first book, which is a book called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. It's all about the stories that we pass between us as women, uh, regardless of if you're a daughter or you're a mother, like we have been handed a story about what it means to have a good body. And the, in the research for that book, what showed up is one of the participants said uh, that when she tried to advocate for body positivity, she was rejected from her friend group. 
Mm. And they had said like, you will, of course you would love your body. You look like that, but like, I can't love my body and I don't really want to be friends with you unless you want essentially want to participate in hating yourself. And that was the way that they belonged to each other is they dieted together and they exercised together and they hated their bodies. And so sometimes what we need to say is like, I, I can't do that anymore. But starting to think critically about media, man, that will take us a very long way. That's, it's really cool hearing, hearing like just more information behind that. Because Mm -hmm. when I was in college, my, something that, you know, a lot of my friends would do and and I would do too, is we would like cut out magazine pictures and put them on different places in our, you know, dorm rooms or whatever of like, this is my ideal body. And, And I have friends who put pictures like on the fridge. So it's like, don't open this fridge because you want to look like this. And I remember, I don't even know what the, the like catalyst was, but I think I was looking through a magazine and something snapped in me where I realized every time I look through these magazines, I feel worse. Like there's a direct correlation between the more time I spend watching these shows or, you know, consuming this kind of content, like truly the worse I feel. And so I just stopped buying magazines and stopped Mm -hmm. watching those shows. And it, it made such a difference in the way that I feel about my body. I I felt ugly and too Mm. big and too small in these ways and too this and too that and too this. And, and when I stopped putting all of those images in my brain to compare myself to, it was amazing how much better I felt in my own skin. And I still, you know, like I've mentioned, it's still like a, a a continuous journey, but I mean, I don't follow anyone on, on social media that talks about getting a certain kind of body. And I just, ever since then, I mean, it's been like a decade Mm. now, but it made the biggest difference. Yes. We kind of need to detox from it in a way. Like I think about detox diets being a, a weight loss strategy in disguise, but I think that we can turn that industry on its head and say, we need to detox from the diet industry, we need to detox from like anti-fat rhetoric. We need to detox from like thin preference. We we need to cut those things out because they are harming us. They're harming our minds and they're harming our societies. And then I think like another thing that is not so cognitive is when we start paying attention to our bodies and the experience of being a body, all of a sudden we remember there's so much more to us than how we look. So that can also be something that we do to heal. So when we when we enjoy something, noticing like what in my body tells me that I enjoy this, or when we feel feeling, allowing ourselves to say what in my body tells me I'm feeling that feeling or paying attention to movement, paying attention to sensation, really, I mean, as simple as this, like noticing our breath when we get up in the morning, that being the first thing that we do. And I I started to practice ages ago because really it's simple and, uh, fast <laughs> and we all live busy lives, which yeah. is something I'm trying to change too. But just putting my hands on my body, one on my chest and one on my belly and saying, I'm so glad we get to spend the day together and talking to myself the way that I would want to talk to anyone else that I love. And this kind of sensory connection of touching my own body and thinking loving things reminded me that this is a journey I take with myself, this life from birth to death, right? This is the longest relationship you will ever have. Nothing can get in the way of it except your own death. And it is 
it is a game changer really to be connected to ourselves and mindful and loving and not even have that has nothing to do with how we look that day. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. I've heard you talk about like giving our, our bodies like, like pronouns is, am I, I, I might be kind of butchering the way that you talked about this, but instead of calling our body an it, calling it like a she, or, or this is yeah. me or, or us or yes. we, you know, I, like even yeah. the idea of, I, I love that we get to spend this day together is, is we're personifying our body, but our body is a person. So it's, right. it doesn't. Yeah, it is. It's life, right? Like it's living. When I think about the where we normally think about bodies, I think about mind-body dualism. So like we have a mind and then we have a body and the body is an it, it's an object. And what I'm trying to suggest really, like if I peel back the curtain, is that I'm trying to say with this book, your body is not an it, your body is a, a she or a he or a they or a we, or it's a me, right? There is a, there is a element of what we call the subjective. It's where, the, it's where subjectivity is. It's where you are. So however you identify your body is wrapped up in that. And, and again, I'm not speaking just about appearance. I'm speaking about everything. Your beating heart, your breathing lungs, the veins that are taking blood down to your toes, right? All of that is part of you, is you. And so sometimes we can use little relational hacks like giving a pronoun, or I have a, I have a friend of mine named Grace who named her body and I won't, I think, I'm not sure if this is private information or not. So I just won't disclose what the name is yeah. because I, I don't want to betray her trust, but she's given her body like a pet name, like a lover's name as a way to be like, oh, hey, <laughs> how you doing? Right. And, and checking in with herself and having dialogue to, to help it feel more like a relational connection with a, with a someone and less of a something. Yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to do lately is just ask myself, what, like, what do you need? And, yeah. and that's like a really hard thing, a really hard question to take the time to ask and a really hard question to answer. And then, but like, what do you like stopping and like, Hey, mm-hmm. what do you need? Exactly. I really, I love that. You've talked about, I've heard you talk about emotional regulation before and the idea that this is part of a, that it's something that we can't really learn on our own, that it's something that we learn in relationship. Can you give us an example of, of how to like walk through the emotions that come up in us when we have a particularly hard body moment, like Mm. we're triggered in some way, we see something and all of a sudden we are just in a total shame spiral. Like how do we get ourselves out of that? Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you asked. I mean, there's a few different ways. If we have someone with us, asking them to be with us while we're feeling big feelings is automatically, especially if they're calm and they're, they can handle it, is going to help us hook up to their nervous system and help us have all of the resources in us in that moment that they have in them. This is a really, a really cool thing that I think is not very well understood culturally, but we are wired to connect with and read and borrow from each other's bodies. And I don't mean that in like a um, like an obvious, tangible way. I really mean that in how our nervous systems are set up. Like we we know when we go into a room with someone who's freaked out, right? It's going to stir us up. We're going to get our heart pumping, and we don't have to know what's going on for them. 
We don't even have to hear the story. Just by seeing the intensity of their emotion, our body is going to respond. And the same thing works the opposite way. If we are freaking out and somebody is really calm, eventually, maybe not in the instant, but it's going to help us feel calmer. So if we can be with somebody who can be with us uh, in the intensity of our feeling, that's a good start. And then when we're whether with someone or we're not with someone, asking ourselves what we feel, naming it, noticing where we feel it in our body, watching it, observing it, seeing what happens next, instead of trying to explain it away or fix it, just letting it be there. Maybe even saying to the feeling, I accept you, or having the person who's sitting with you say to the feeling, I accept you, you're allowed to be here. Maybe getting curious about why it makes sense that we feel that way. So validating or empathizing a little bit. And then sometimes what we need to do is like kind of move it through us. So maybe if we feel sadness, we need to cry or we need a hug. Or maybe if we feel angry, we need to set a boundary. Maybe if we feel joyful, we need to have a little dance party. Hmm. And being able to move the emotion through us in a bodily way, not just in an intellectual way, is part of how we we discharge that intensity instead of getting it it getting shoved down and locked into our gut to our nervous system somewhere. Yeah. Okay. That is, that's really cool. There are two questions that I want to ask you because these are things that I've been curious about that, that I've been having a really hard time finding the answer to. And they're, they're kind of a small tangent, but I I know that you're going to have really good things to say about this. Something we've talked about a lot on the show is, is therapy. And it's something that I am a huge, huge fan of, a huge proponent of. And I know that with some of the harder parts of our body stories, like having someone to really sit down with us and work through some of this with us is just a really, really great place to start. But when we're finding a a counselor, a therapist, how, how do we know if we found the right one? Like what, Mm. what should we be looking for in a therapist? Well, I think, And I'll try to be brief with this because I really could go on and on and on. The first thing is it's always good to look for someone who's licensed or credentialed because we know that they're going to have to pass a a process of ensuring, you know, that they're practicing an effective way, et cetera. So looking for someone who, yeah, who you know is credible and has a reputation. I think there are so many other things I could say, but what I'll boil it down to is can I feel myself with this person safe enough to go scary places? And do I feel challenged or pushed or like I'm getting something here? So often when I'm working with patients or I see a new person, I'll say, I want for you to feel safe, but I want for you to feel pushed. I want for you to feel that kind of like that good burn that most of us know if we're getting a stretch, like you're, you know, it's been a long day and you stretch out your legs, your arms, your back and oh, it's, it burns a little bit, but it's not injuring you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we want to go for. And sometimes that we feel that right away. And sometimes we feel that after a few sessions, but it's more about recognizing, can I take risks with this person? And sometimes we're more able to take risks with someone because we believe they're competent because they have certain kind of trainings or they're an expert in certain areas. So that can help us too. How long should we give it before we go? I don't really know if this is, if, if I like maybe I feel very cushy here, but not very pushed. Or maybe right. I feel pushed, yeah. but not very comforted. Yeah. Well, I think that it's important that we let the therapist know that. So it doesn't really matter how long it's been. I think more like, have you told them? And how, what have they said? So in the first session, if you feel that way, like, I don't know, give it a, give it another session. But if it's the second, third, fourth, fifth session, and you haven't said that you're not getting what you need, 
then that's not just about the therapist. That's also about something that you probably need to learn how to do too. So instead of like, oh, I'm just going to exit out the back door, telling the therapist. And if the therapist rises to the occasion, that's great. You learned something and they did too. But if you say that you need something and they can't give it to you or they get defenses, defense, defensive, then you know it's time for you to peace out. Okay. That makes sense. And then what about, what about like you find a counselor, you like them, you sit down and then like whose job is it to lead us through the stuff we need to talk through? Like, could we botch it by being afraid to bring up certain things because our therapist doesn't know that part of our story? Like, so we never end up talking about it. Does that make sense? Like who's, who leads this? Yeah, I think we lead it together. And that's the sign of a good therapy dynamic is that we can intervene and the therapist can intervene and we can ask what we need, but they can also say, Hey, I think you're missing something here. And we can collaborate and co-construct something together. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Hillary, do you have any just last piece of encouragement for women who are wanting to heal their relationship with their bodies? Yeah. I just want to say what I said already. Your body is good. Your body has always been good. And I'm so sorry if you learned stories that made you think otherwise, but those stories are the things that need to change. Not, not anything about you. I love that. Hillary, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to be with us. I am just so honored. Oh, thank you. It's been a a privilege to be with you. Thanks everyone for listening. Friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I cannot tell you how much it means to me to have you here at Girls' Night. Before you go, I would love it if you do two quick things. The first is to subscribe. Subscribing to the podcast is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. It's also a way easier way to listen because it's a way of sort of bookmarking the podcast. You'll never have to go looking for it again. Your app will just automatically download the next episode when a new one's released. The other thing is, it would mean so much to me if you would take a quick second to leave us a rating and a review for the podcast. The way that iTunes knows to suggest the podcast to new people is by the ratings and the reviews. That's how we invite new friends to our girls' nights. So would you do me a huge favor and take just a quick second to leave a rating and a quick comment about how you like the podcast so far? It helps out so much. And thank you to all of you who have left those beautiful five-star reviews already. It means the world to me. All right, friends, that's all we have for today, but we'll be back next week with another episode of Girls' Night. And I have to tell you, you're going to love this one. I'll see you then.